Eric Caro, and welcome to episode eight of Caro Pop. My guest is someone whose work makes me get up and jump around like a crazy person, Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club drummer, Chris France. Chris and his wife, bassist Tina Weymouth, are one of the funkiest rhythm sections in rock history. From Talking Heads 77, the band's debut, through Naked, their swan song, Chris Franz laid down urgent beats that make you move. It didn't matter whether David Byrne was singing about not worrying about the government. Or making shows to put on TV. Finding a city to live in. But whether Tina and her sisters were extolling a certain genius of love. I don't think I've ever danced as much as when I saw Talking Heads playing behind Speaking in Tongues at Poplar Creek before that tour was immortalized by Jonathan Demme in Stop Making Sense, the greatest concert film ever. Chris France wrote a memoir, Remain in Love, that came out last year. It's a terrific read that chronicles his time with Talking Heads and the Tom Tom Club and his now 44-year marriage to Tina Weymouth. He writes so adoringly about Tina, the book can be read as a love letter to her. It is not a love letter to David Byrne, the Talking Heads frontman who, in Chris's view, was obsessed with grabbing credit for everything and diminishing others' contributions. In our conversation, Chris takes us through the history of Talking Heads, starting with their early days out of the Rhode Island School of Design when it was just Chris, Tina, and David. How did Psycho Killer come to be their first song, and what parts did each of them contribute? Might it have been weird for David Byrne to be in a band with a couple? Did the addition of keyboardist-guitarist Jerry Harrison stabilize things? Spoiler alert, France says no. For which Talking Heads song did France write the lyrics, and why did Byrne write them for just about everything else? How did the band's relationship with producer Brian Eno develop and deteriorate? How did the Tom Tom Club's success affect Talking Heads? Was France being rebellious when he wore a teal shirt while the rest of the band was dressed in gray and stopped making sense? Does Byrne's discussion of being on the spectrum temper France's opinion of him? What does Chris think about American Utopia, Byrne's recasting of Talking Heads songs for Broadway? Would Chris Franz like to see a Talking Heads reunion anyway? As a bonus, Tina Weymouth makes a cameo appearance at the beginning of this conversation, discussing how she is one of just two female bassists in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She does not approve of that situation. If you're a Talking Heads fan or just someone who enjoys smart, entertaining music talk, this must be the place. Get out of your seat and enjoy Chris France on Carol Pop. Hi, Tina. Hi, hi. <laughs> Hope you have a good time. Christmas. Thank you. You could join in any time. I, well, I, no, I saw the. No, thank I saw, you. I don't like interviews, but um, Chris is a wonderful interview. Well, awesome. Well, 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 Kathy Valentine, who I interviewed like two podcasts ago, just posted a photo of you and her and said you're now the two, the, the only two female bassists in the Rock Hall of Fame, which is crazy. That is crazy. There are so many good, extraordinarily good young women. Yeah, I agree. Kathy's a sweetheart. And why isn't Carol Kay in there? 
Carol Kay is awesome. She should da- absolutely be there. I, I'd love to hear her speech too. Yeah. I mean, she's in her eighties, so they better hurry up. There you go. I, I totally agree with you. I'm actually going to go see the feelies and Brenda Sauter. Uh, she's been playing with them since like what? 86, 85, something like that. And she's awesome too. It's like the feelies are totally under the radar of something like the rock hall, but she's great as well. Right. But you know, um, the runaways never got in. And because there's this perception that Kim Fowley uh, invented them. But no, they were 16-year-olds who put themselves together. And they're right. being completely, they're, I mean, it's it's absurd. Well, and the idea, and obviously, you know, like for, for someone like me, I never felt like I needed like any sort of official organization like the Grammys or the Rock Call to validate my tastes. You know, like I was listening to stuff that I prided myself on, like not listening to the mainstream stuff. So, so on one hand, I was like thrilled when, you know, you guys got in or Elvis Costello or, you know, any of those. But on the other hand, you know, there's so many other bands that I love that, that are not in there that I thought, well, you know, I can only it's so it's all the grain of salt, but I was really happy for the go-go's that they got in. Cause it was really just way, way overdue, but you know, like Los Lobos and Richard Thompson are still not in there. So, you know, it's, it's, there's always a, you know, there's always a trade-off on all of these things. There are so many deserving people, but you know, it's crazy. It's a crazy world. It's not fair. There's no justice. Well, you guys should just like mount a concert of like the bands that are actually like the great bands and it doesn't have anything to do with the rock hall and it would just be, you guys could curate it and be the rhythm section for everyone. That would be a fantastic concert. Oh, that's very flattering that, but you know, promoting is a really hard thing these days. That would be, that curating is something that promoters do. Right. You need to set up your own like festival, Tom, Tom club and special guests right. festival or something right. like that. It's all about the money. Unfortunately. Anyway, I, I got to go. Cause Chris is here. <laughs> well, great talking to you. Well, I was going to, I was going to ask him some questions about like you guys as a rhythm section since no, you're there. I'm just I mean, he really is. He remembers everything. Unlike most of these people. <laughs> Chris, did you take notes on like all the meals that you had? Because your detail on like the food in this the book is really impressive. Well, I do keep my receipts, <laughs> but but it doesn't have the meals itemized. It just tells me where I was. But but you know, um, have you ever been? Are you a musician? Have you ever been on tour? Because when you are. When you are, on I play tour, guitar badly, but I've never been on tour. When, when you're on tour, one of the one of the high points of the day is having dinner, or or maybe lunch or something. And and um, so so you, uh, at least I tend to remember these things. Uh, the show is very important, but also what's for dinner? <laughs> <laughs> it's the reward. Yeah. The more you could have called the book more stories about music and food. Uh, maybe that's maybe that'll be my next one. That'll be the sequel. Yeah. What, what do you what do you think is the most common misconception about how a band operates? Oh, I think the most common mis- misconception is that the lead singer is because he's the star of the show, or she, because they're the star of the show that they are the band they are the most important aspect of the band and um 
anybody who's in a band knows that there are many important aspects and that they all have to be working well in order for the band to get over you know right and uh so i i was never jealous of our lead singer because i i thought wow man he's amazing (laughs) he's incredible i could never do that so i i never thought i could do that you know but but I knew I I know that I was in a very I was a very important component of the band because not only was I the drummer but I also put the band together and right. if I may say so kept it together until that fateful day when when uh, David decided that he didn't want to work with the rest of us anymore. Right. It was was writing Remain in Love, which I totally enjoyed, by the way. Uh, was writing this book important to you because you wanted to set the record straight on this? Yeah, it, it was. But it's also an important, to my way of thinking, uh, a beautiful love story between uh, me and Tina. And right. I, feel like, I feel like I'm very fortunate in many ways, but probably most fortunate in that I, I, I met Tina Weymouth and actually got her to marry me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you've been married for what, 44 years now? Uh, hold on. We were married in 77. Yeah. Yeah, 44 years. Well, Is that right? That sounds right to me. So yeah. uh, in the book, I think it was 42 or 43. So I just added it. Yeah. So yeah, 77 would make it make sense. Um, well, and also when you're in a band and you're in a rhythm section, that's different from like, like some people, like there, there's some husband and wives or former husbands and wives, couples um, that are, that are in bands together that are not like the rhythm section. Actually, I found it ironic because in the book you say that at your wedding, they played Fleetwood Mac's rumors. And I thought, well, that's about as inauspicious an album to play at your wedding as there possibly could be. <laughs> I know, that's funny, huh? So, but it was a big hit at the time. Oh yes, and, it was. And it was something that pretty much everybody, it was innocuous enough that nobody would be offended by it. Right. But like when you're two songwriters in a band or, you know, the guitarist and the keyboardist, it's a different relationship than when you're the bassist and the drummer. Right. I mean, it's almost like you're like already sort of musically the married couple in that band because you have to be so tight to make that band work. And and you guys are so much the engine of Talking Heads and then, you know, Tom Tom Club. Yeah. Well, we do. uh We do work very well together and. Uh, it almost from the get-go I mean uh, when Tina was when Tina was just learning teaching herself like she's self-taught and uh, some people say oh David taught Tina to play the bass well David doesn't know how to play the bass so how can he teach her and uh, same here but uh, almost from the get-go Tina was uh Tina had a, this like laser-like focus, and um, she just kept getting better and better, day by day. And you, you could you could actually you, you could actually see the progression, or I could, and um, it was very impressive to me. And and uh, she she ended up being what a lot of people think is. Uh, a lot of people think she's one of the best bass players that there is. Sure. Well, if there's such memorable bass lines and they just get you moving. I mean, when you started Talking Heads, did you have any idea how funky this band would be? 
no idea. I mean, we did we did lo- always love funky music. I mean, David as well. Uh, we we in our record collection, and you know, when we were getting started, we sort of shared a record collection, and we we would have. Uh, you know, the Velvet Underground and David Bowie and T-Rex, but we would also have Al Green and James Brown and Bohannon and The Four Tops and Otis Redding. So so we, uh, P-Funk, the, the, you know, Parliament Funkadelic kind of came to came to our attention around the, around that time 1974 1975 so, and you ended up with a member of the band in your band eventually yeah Bernie it's Moore. incredible i mean so many incredible things happened with talking heads for example one of the reasons we moved to new york was because lou reed lived there and of course andy warhol and we we were you know we were young artists and we we, we thought uh, well, New York is the center of the artistic universe because Andy Warhol and Lou Reed are there. So, so we moved there, and before we knew it, we—I mean, we we started playing at CBGBs, and before we knew it, Andy Warhol was in the audience, and Lou Reed was inviting us back to his apartment after the show. To, right. uh, you know, things like that. It, it was. And and later on, you know, as you pointed out, Bernie Worrell of Parliament Funkadelic uh, agreed to play with our band, you know, not just for a night, but for uh, like several years. Right. So, yeah. We, and you, your book, you have a funny story also about going back to Lou Reed's place and he, he what, he eats an entire container of ice cream and doesn't offer anyone to any, any of it to anyone else and then kind of ends up offering you guys like a terrible deal for your catalog or something like he was going to sign you to this bad 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 you know record company man lou reed you know yeah well uh lou reed is a wonderful artist and he was always highly supportive of us even up until the day he died he was he was uh you know very kind to talking heads and to a lesser extent tom tom club but also he you know he performed with Tom Tom Club live on stage at CBGB's. So, you know, we have a we have a special place in our hearts for for Lou Reed, but but you wouldn't want to do business with him. <laughs> <laughs> The CD version of the name in the band is Talking Heads, which has a lot more songs than the original vinyl, which of course I also own. And you know, even just those those out the songs from the first two albums and the singles that were coming out, there's this just tight energy to it where it just makes you want to get up and move, even before you're doing sort of the big band, you know, funk stuff. So it was always part of your sound. And it, it's it's sort of interesting to sort of figure out where that was coming from some combination of like again your rhythm section and that sort of nervous you know energy that that david byrne was bringing to it but somehow it just became a like a very funky rock band even though you guys look like these sort of deranged preppies or something yeah well you know i was a preppy <laughs> i i i admit it i i went to prep school i mean you know, I, I 
My parents wanted me to go to a good college, you know. The the funk thing is just something that I don't know. When when we when we when we chose to listen to music, we often chose to listen to stuff that would uh, make us want to get up and dance, you know. Right. We we really liked to. Tina and I really liked to dance. David really liked to dance. And so uh, it was natural that we would gravitate gravitate towards songs that were good for dancing, like you know, Papa's got a brand new bag, or Make My Funk the P Funk, or Take Me to the River. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and even you know, and obviously you know, Psycho Killer's got that killer you know bass line, and it, again, you just start you just start moving to it just because the bass is sort of just pulsating along with, and you know the the vocals and everything are kind of in these clipped rhythms. It's not this kind of languid California rock or anything like that. No, no, we, we weren't into the languid too much. <laughs> I see you're wearing a Stax t-shirt. We, see, we real we really love Stax. Absolutely. Like almost, I would say almost everything they ever released we really loved. And such great drummers over there too. Uh, you yeah. know, like, like someone like Al Jackson, you just, it's hard to tell how he's doing what he's doing. Cause it's just so deep into the pocket, even though it's not fancy. I don't know. I'm yeah. not an expert on it, but he, he's uh, one of my heroes when it comes to drums. When, so talking heads originally were a trio of you, Tina and David, uh, before Jerry Harrison, uh, joined, do you think that the fact that you guys were a couple in any way made David Byrne feel like he was sort of a third wheel? Was it, did that sort of set a dynamic in the band that would continue? Uh, it's possible that, that sometimes David felt like a, uh, what can I say? I, I got the girl, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, David always had girlfriends. He had no problem f finding girlfriends. He did have problem keeping girlfriends. Uh, but uh, I don't know why that is. Three people is sort of a tricky dynamic in any sense. I mean, you know, I remember even being in college, like the one year I had, you know, two roommates instead of three roommates or one roommate. There's always sort of a two in one sort of dynamic. Did everything get more stabilized when Jerry Harrison joined? No. <laughs> I think it was more stable before, but that's no fault of Jerry's. But, um, but you know, Jerry, when he, when he joined the band, when he finally joined the band, we were after him for some time. How, how I found Jerry was uh, I was home visiting my parents in Pittsburgh and one of my mother's friends came up to me and said, oh, Chris, you know, I, I understand you're having great success with your band in New York. My nephew is in a band in Boston. And I said, really? What's, what's the name of his band? And she said, The Modern Lovers. And I said, holy mackerel. Uh, we love The Modern Lovers. And uh, she didn't know this, but I knew that The Modern Lovers had broken up. So at that point, and, and so I said to her, could I have your nephew's uh, phone number? And, and, and she said, sure. And she, his name is Ernie Brooks. So she gave me the number. And before I, before I had a chance to call him, when I was back in New York, Tina and I went to a, 
and David too, where the three of us went to a restaurant called The Local. The Local was um, Mickey Ruskin's restaurant after Max's Kansas City. And they were famous for their great hamburgers. And we went there to have a hamburger. The chef who made the hamburgers was Julian Schnabel, the famous painter. Really? And later film director. So it was a, hap- it was a happening little spot. And I, uh, we were enjoying our hamburgers. And I looked over and I said, holy mackerel, there's Ernie Brooks over there at that table. I recognize him because of his big curly head of hair that was... Um, scene on the back cover of the Modern Lovers album. So I went over to Ernie. I said, oh, Ernie, I, uh, my name's Chris France. I'm from the band Talking Heads, and I, I, uh, I met your aunt in Pittsburgh, and she... she uh, so we talked about, you know, his aunt and uncle and how nice they were. And I, then I, when, when I had a chance, I said, could you put me in touch with Jerry Harrison? What's Jerry doing? And he said, Jerry's not doing anything right now. Here's his number. So I called him. In fact, he was doing something. He, he had, uh, he had uh, entered architecture school at Harvard. He was studying architecture. But I called him anyway. And uh, he said, well... This is very interesting, but I, I would like to see your band perform before I agree to, you know, play with you or anything. So we arranged a gig in Cambridge, Massachusetts, specifically so that Jerry could see us play. And he came to see us. I think it might be the first time that a, a band has auditioned for a keyboard player. <laughs> but 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 anyway. Uh, one thing led to another, and Jerry became a member of the band. Uh, it wasn't easy for him because the Modern Lovers had had been... It, it had kind of broken his heart when that band broke up. And uh, But we, we enticed him, and uh, I wouldn't say that he was a stabilizing influence at all, but he was a great influence, uh, musically speaking. And he really, as they say, tied it all together. And suddenly, Talking Heads went from being a trio to being a quartet that really sounded like it had some power. I'm always grateful to Jerry for, for jo- not only for joining the band, but, but for bringing such uh, uh, artistry to the band. He, he, really, he really is a consummate uh, keyboard player and and a great guitarist as well. So how did he fit in in terms of the whole band dynamic then if he didn't stabilize it? He just fit in. We 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 enjoyed a lot of the same music although although he he always said, "Oh Chris, you should listen to Aerosmith. They're really great." And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> he he liked them because they were from Boston, you know. And he was he was He's really from Milwaukee, but he had been at Harvard and he'd spent a lot of time in Boston at that time. And uh, But uh, what we really uh, bonded over with, with Jerry was the Stooges. Jerry loved the Stooges and we loved the Stooges. And uh, like when Jerry would warm up on guitar, he would always play Stooges songs. I thought that's cool. I mean, you know... Uh, 
but he fit in very well. We we had we had a lot a lot of interests in common, and and we were from similar backgrounds. You know, like nice white suburban kids. You know, Psycho Killer was written before he joined. Um, tell me about sort of how that came about. I mean, I know that you you all made your contributions to it, but like, what's the what's the actual order in which the elements of Psycho Killer became that song that everyone knows and loves now? Well, uh, at the Rhode Island School of Design, where Tina and David and I were all in attendance, um, we, I had formed a little uh, band called The Artistics, and the sole purpose of The Artistics was to entertain our friends. We didn't have any dreams of making a record or getting a record deal or anything like that. We, we just wanted to amuse our friends. And so we would we were a cover band and we would play. It was me, David Byrne and three other guys. And we would play like uh, Velvet Underground. I'm waiting for my man. We would play uh I'm Not Your Stepping Stone by Paul Revere and the Raiders. We would play 96 Tears by Question Mark and the Mysterians. And we would play uh, Love and Happiness by Al Green and things like that. Tracks of My Tears by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. We, we would play uh, uh, our favorite songs. Uh I Can't Control Myself by the Trogs. <laughs> and uh, we had a pretty pretty fun and, and entertaining repertoire. But at, at a certain point, uh, David and I said to each other, well, maybe we should try writing our, one of our own songs, see how that goes. And uh, a couple days after that, we a couple days after we had that conversation, there was a knock on the door Tina and I shared a painting studio and uh, I opened the door it was David standing there with his guitar and he said I've got the beginnings of a song and I, I'm, I'd be interested if you all would uh, help me uh, finish it up and I said sure come on in and he said now I, he played me the he said this song is called Psycho Killer and it's inspired by Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper was enormously popular at the time with, with these macabre rock songs. Right. And, and so, so Psycho Killer could have been an Alice Cooper title. But, but David played the first verse in the chorus, and I thought, oh, man, this is great. Uh, you know, because it sounded to me like a mashup of Somehow the Velvet Underground meets Otis Redding. And um, he, David said, well, I asked this Japanese girl if she would write a middle eight in a foreign language, because I think the middle eight should be in a foreign language to su <laughs> suggest some kind of psych psychotic episode on the part of the, the singer. So, uh, but the Japanese girl, when she found out the song was called Psycho Killer, turned and ran away. <laughs> she didn't like that idea. And I said, well, you know, Tina, her mother is French and they always spoke French in the home. And um, she's fluent at French. She could do it. 
So Tina, Tina sat down, Tina agreed, and she sat down and she wrote the French part. And it was, a, you know, it only took her about an hour or so. And in the meantime, I wrote a couple of other verses to add on to the song, lyrical verses. And uh, within a few hours, the song was done. And we, we, uh, we, we started playing that song, Psycho Killer, with the artistics. And people really liked it. I mean, really liked it. Even more than our uh, cover songs. So we thought we should do more of this, and and we did. Is that when the cassette came into the song too, or was that already there? Because that's your first sort of introduction of uh, the foreign language. Yeah, uh, actually, David came up with the cassette, and um, was that after Tina added the French part, or was that already there? I think it was already there. I think it was already there, but uh, either way, it was a great idea. <laughs> well, I love the sort of just hearing about the collaborations. Like, I didn't realize until I read your book that you'd written the lyrics to Warning Sign. Yeah. You just sort of think that all these lyrics are coming out of David. Yeah. Are there other songs that were sort of collaborative like that? And were you able to sort of sustain that? Or did that just sort of go away over the years? Well, uh, well there were collaborative songs, um, lyrically speaking, uh, yes. But uh, at, at a certain point, I think it was after our lawyer explained to us how uh, songwriting royalties work, that there's a, uh, a top-line melody, and that, that's half the song, and the other half of the song is the lyrics. And so if you write both the top-line melody and the lyrics, then you're the writer. If one person writes the lyrics and another person writes the top-line melody, then it's split two ways. So I think after our lawyer explained to that to us, uh, that was when David came to me and he said, I'm only going to sing the songs that I write the lyrics for from here on out. Hmm. And uh, I, I was a little taken aback by that, but... Uh, that's something that I had to deal with. That type of thinking was something that I had to deal with throughout the Talking Heads experience, you know? And if, and if we wanted to keep the band going, we just had to roll with that, which is what we did. Yeah, it seemed like you had a lot of conflicts over songwriting credits over the years and you guys having to speak up to make sure that your contributions were recognized. Yeah, yeah, we did. It's, it's, it's just part of David's... Uh, uh, way of doing things that he uh, he, he uh, doesn't understand what other people have contributed. He, he thinks, yeah, uh, Tina and and Chris and I sat down and uh, worked on this song, and before I knew it, I had written it. <laughs> yeah. I saw some story. I, I, I can't remember if it was like in Mojo or on Cut or one of those where it's talking about the making of Remain in Light. And that you know, even then, like Brian, you know, it, it suggested that everyone sort of come in and say what percentage of each song they felt like they had contributed. So they would sort of break it down in some sort of numerical way, which which seems insane in terms of, you know, something that's an art like music. And you're trying to, you know, trust each other and be collaborative. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was difficult 
that that record in particular was very difficult when it came to the credits but you know what can i say it's a wonderful record it's an amazing piece of music and i'm very happy i was part of it yeah it's you know it's just a shame the business stuff just with so many bands i mean from the beatles on uh just becomes such an an issue i mean i as i mentioned i'd spoken to kathy valentine a few episodes ago and you know the go-go's had their share of conflict over you know who was making money off of the songwriting um you know rem on the flip side just shared songwriting you know just split it among all the band members every single time and they lasted a lot longer even though i'm sure that there are some band members who were contributing more than others it, would that have would that have helped if you guys could have sort of at the beginning said, all right, it's all, every song is written by all of us and we're not going to try to break down all this stuff and we're just going to share everything. Would that have kept you guys together longer? It's possible that it may have done, but it's also possible that David would have said, no, I'm not going to do that. So uh, I, I don't really know the answer to that question, but yeah, I, w- I would advise any band Knowing what I know now, I would advise any band to have a an agreement in the early days, make an agreement about songwriting credits and you know record royalties and things like that, so that everybody understands each other. Talking Heads album, do you think the band was kind of at its peak power, you know, where everything was really clicking? Oh, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we didn't make any bad records. The, the, there, there are some records that were more popular, you know, than others, but uh, I, I don't think any of them are shitty. <laughs> no. But do you, do you have one that you think is like, if you had to sort of point to one and said, this is this is us, or is it too much like picking among your children or something? Yeah, it is kind of like children, but um, I love certain songs on every album. And, um, you know, I, I think Remain in Light is generally recognized as our, our masterpiece. But the one that came before it was pretty groovy, and so was the one that came after it. So, right. you know... And our final record has that song called Nothing But Flowers, which I love. And, uh, you know, I really loved Naked when that came out. I was like, oh, this is such a it, it, and it was a change of pace again from uh, Little Creatures and True Stories, which were more kind of singer song. Like they, they were sort of more back to basics and less layered. And yes, there's more sort of fluid grooves again in Naked. Yeah, I agree with you. But uh, True Stories and Little Creatures were, uh, were the two albums that David came to us with demos that he had, right. he had made. You know, when I say demos, I'm talking about a little drum machine and guitar and one microphone, David singing. And um, there was much to be uh, added to, those, to David's demos to make them into, you know, beautiful songs. But um, that was the direction he wanted to go, was the sort of uh, um, Americana. Uh, that's what was hip at the time, was Americana. And, and David liked that. 
and David had this movie that he was uh, imagining true stories and uh, so I mean we did the music in advance of the movie being shot but uh, he had this this movie in mind and it was it was uh, I, I know a lot of people think that that those two records little creatures and and uh, true stories were somehow maybe a little bit less interesting than some of our other records, but they sold like hotcakes. <laughs> so, what are you gonna do? You know. Well, and you and you had stop making sense that it come out right before Little Creatures, so that was the first one. Yeah. After that, as well, were, were there have there were there any Talking Head songs that you know he brought in where you just thought, oh no, I guess I'll do this one, but this is not my favorite. There are a couple that uh, um. There was one on Little Creatures called Give Me Back My Name that, uh, I mean, I get it and everything, but it, it wasn't it wasn't a lot of fun, not a fun song. I kind of like, like I said before, I kind of like songs that make you want to get up and dance or, or at least party a little bit. And this was not, that was not one of those songs. But, you know, these things happen. <laughs> I do find it amazing that the band Radiohead took their name from a song off of True Stories. Yeah, yeah, it is amazing. And as David himself had said, why that song? <laughs> <laughs> so you're talking at 77, more songs about buildings and food, fear of music, remain in light. Then you take this break. You did the Tom Tom Club record um, and and then Speaking in Tongues. And David did like the Catherine Wheel. Speaking in Tongues was next. How much do you think the Tom Tom Club record and that experience sort of pushed what was happening on you know speaking in tongues and beyond that the tom tom club album was a huge hit and right it indicated to uh to david and everybody else in the music business that maybe there is some value to having chris and tina in the band after all <laughs> and and uh therefore the next record we did with talking heads speaking in tongues Tina and I had a lot of, uh, we had, we had, you know, the success of Tom Tom Club gave us a, a, a recharge that we really needed at that particular point in time, that time in our lives. And um, uh, I think you can hear it, that we were recharged on, on uh, songs like Burning Down the House and This, right. must, this must Be the Place. It was it was really a good time. It's it's just kind of this joyous dance record, and I don't know, like the other albums. I mean, there there's wonderful music on them, but this was the first one that you would say is actually maybe joyous. I don't know if that's a fair word, but I feel like some of the infectious energy of Tom Tom Club, you know, yeah. spilled over into speaking in tongues. Yeah, you're right. You're right about that. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> And then you had the, and then you had the tour, uh, which became, which I saw that tour. I saw you in two consecutive years at Poplar Creek in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, one of them yeah. you were you were promoting. Name of this band is Talking Heads, and I think Tina was maybe eight months pregnant or something, and yeah. and that was a great show. And then a year later, Speaking in Tongues had come out, and I'd bought the Rauschenberg cover and the other cover, uh, and. Um, and that was when you did the, the show that became the movie uh, Stop Making Sense. And that was a fantastic show. And I remember you played 
burning down the house as an encore again, just for fun. I think, I don't know, but I was like, I had great seats and I don't know if I'd ever danced so much at a show as I had at that one. And then yeah. I got to relive it a year later when, you know, the movie came out. The Speaking in Tongues tour was so much more choreographed. I mean, it sort of made sense as a movie because it already told a story. Were you were you down with the way that was presented? Like, did you did you enjoy that aspect of it? Well, yes. Although although there were certain things about it that I wasn't crazy about, like as much as as much as I understand that it was cool to have David come out alone and do Psycho Killer. It was cool. It looked good and everything, but that wasn't how it really happened. It was it was like David was trying to rewrite history somehow. Like it all began with me. <laughs> and then Tina came, and then Chris came, and then Jerry came, but it, it wasn't really that wasn't really how it happened. And uh but it was a good show, so I'm, I'm not going to argue with it. In the movie, for the first half of it, uh, everyone's wearing gray, and you're wearing this teal shirt. Was that was that sort of an, was that an act of rebellion on your part? Like I'm not playing it, this game. You know, it it wasn't really an act of rebellion. I I don't know what I was thinking. I I also had a, a gray shirt and a brown shirt, but for some reason that night I put put on this teal co- colored shirt. I don't know why I did that. Well, because because in the book you kind of roll your eyes about the whole gray shirt thing, and then when I rewatched uh, Stop Making Sense, I'm like, ah, there's his rebellion right there. <laughs> maybe I maybe I was. <laughs> um, what was your reaction when David basically said the band wouldn't tour anymore? It was not good. Uh, it made me really sad because Talking Heads had established ourselves as a premier touring band. We did a great show. I mean, there's no, it's undeniable. Our show was one of the best, if not the best, happening at that time. And to just pull the plug on it was pretty uh, commercially, well, and also artistically uh, dissatisfying to me. And, it, it was it was David's way of trying to bury Talking Heads and uh, as a band, and it, it just didn't seem right to me. Do you do you think that it was there was a sense of oh I've done like the ultimate show with Stop Making Sense and I don't want to have to try to top that every time out and sort of kind of overthinking it instead of being like you know what if we just go out and play music really really well that's you know, that's a great show. So do you think he was sort of overthinking in that way? Or do you think that it was that he was really just diminishing the band and that now he's sort of center stage and doing true stories and that stuff and doesn't want to share the stage with you guys? I think it's uh, probably the latter. Although it, it, I'm sure it was intimidating. I mean, it, 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 I'm sure it was intimidating for him to think that he had to top the Stop Making Sense show. But, you know, now he's... He, I think he thinks he's topped it now with his Broadway show. And, uh, you know, for people who have no memory of those nights at Poplar Creek, for example, right. maybe he has. But 
uh, I'm sorry, the marching band and show tunes are, are the show tunization of the Talking Heads repertoire is it's not a big turn on for me, although more power to David for having a nice Broadway show. <laughs> well, I was going to get to that later, but since you brought it up, did you watch the Spike Lee version or actually go down and see it live at some point? Well, I would have gone to see it live had I been invited, but I was never invited, so I didn't. I mean, I wasn't going to just walk into the theater and, you know, sit down and watch the show. Um especially with Tina with me that would have been really weird but but um, uh, I didn't watch the Spike Lee thing because uh, I, I saw the, the performance on Stephen Colbert and I saw some YouTube videos like from Jazz Fest and uh, maybe it was Coachella or something and I thought oh this is nice David's like you know, doing doing his thing. At least he's got a good suit on. <laughs> At least it fits. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, a lot of it seems to be bringing uh, joy to a lot of people. Although we all know that there would be no Broadway show without those Talking Heads songs, and it's a right. shame. It's a shame that David seems to be able to. Uh, or, or say, is, is, seems to be able to play those Talking Heads songs with any other person other than the people he wrote them with and, you know, created them with. If, if he'd said, hey, you know, you guys, uh, Chris and Tina, why don't you join this Broadway show I'm doing? You could, you know, march around with your drum and your, your, your bass uh, without the wires on it and be part of this. Would you have had any interest in doing that? Um. Well, that didn't happen, but right. Uh, I, I, I think we would have been more interested in a real Talking Heads show, uh, where we just, uh, you know, play the songs with great heart and soul. You would still do that? Oh yeah, because yeah, because the, the only time you guys have played together was it was two thousand two, the Rock Hall introduction. Yes. Um, you guys still sounded great. There was like very little eye contact, but then I was kind of going back to old stuff and there's not that much eye contact in the old stuff either, but I was trying to sort of pick up on whether that was sort of a happy performance for all of you or not. Well, that that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, at that point it was still, that was 2002 and it was still being held at the ballroom of the Waldorf Astoria in New York. And, you know, the audience is... Uh, record company executives and promotion men and uh, people who are paying $10,000 a seat or whatever it is. And, you know, it, it's a tough audience. Plus, it's being filmed for television. Plus, you know, it's the first time we played together in like many, many years. So it was it was like an intense night. And the fact that we pulled it off at all is, a, I think, a real feather in our cap. <laughs> right. But it would have been nice to sort of like sort of now you're shaking off the rust to actually get it going again. And yeah, my yeah. understanding the story I'd seen, I think it's in your book and I'd seen it elsewhere, was that you'd approached him in 2003 because you guys had gotten a lucrative offer and he basically 
sent an email saying never talk to me about this again or something like that. Yes, that's correct. Yes. He, he just, you know, he just doesn't want, he, he wants the whole pie for himself. So, Because on one hand, and I think you've pointed this out, if you're saying, well, I'm not going to look, that would be looking backwards, then, you know, then maybe you aren't sort of leaning so hard on that material, you know, still. Um, so it's, so it's hard to sort of, I guess, balance that stuff. It's funny because when I was younger, I used to be like, oh, bands should get back together because it'll spoil the magic. And as I got older, I thought, oh, it'd be really nice to see people perform music that I love together again. You know, it's like, it's just a nice thing. It's music. That's what it's for. It's for love. Yeah. And that, and the fact that all four of the original members are still alive and well, who knows how long. (laughs) Are you keeping up on your plane? Yeah. I am. I'm, you know, we, we did some secret shows with Tom Tom Club uh, in late August. We were, uh, they were private parties. And some very nice people made us very handsome offers. And so we, we went and we did, we did some shows. And I tell you, it was really fun and we really had a good time. And yes, we can still play. Yes, we were rusty, but we rehearsed so hard that by the time we hit the stage, we were tight and snappy. <laughs> mm. Well, if you do any of those in Chicago, just send me a little note and just say, sneak in the back of this house at this time. You know, one of them was in Chicago. I hate no! to tell you. Oh, It was at the Park West. Uh, oh, man. It was a private party and uh, 500 people. And we rocked the joint, but we had we were sworn to secrecy because, uh, you know. All right, I'm going to find out who's part of the party that was and get get annoyed about it. Now I'm just going to feel I'm going to have FOMO. Yeah, and, and and Jerry Harrison was wasn't he touring Remain in Light with Adrian Ballou? Didn't they have like some band they were doing songs from that as well? Yeah, they ha- there's a band called Turquoise. I think that's how they pronounce it, and they're an excellent band, and they love remain in light and they they got uh well well jerry produced an album for them and somehow during that album project they they uh they suggested that jerry and also adrian and i think they wanted me and tina to join them too but i was working on my book and uh uh tina was otherwise occupied and and we we just we said thank you but no but they they went out and did it and then the pandemic hit and they had to postpone a lot of dates which i i think they did a few of them this past summer Mm. and it was a big success really good but you know uh if 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 we were going to go out and do Talking Heads songs, I, I would like it to be the Talking Heads, <laughs> right? Not 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 the sort of the Heads variations or that sort of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. I saw you on tour at I think it was the World Theater in like 1990 or something like that, and it was Tom Tom Club and Jerry Harrison and the Ramones and Deborah Harry. Oh yeah, um, and it was great seeing you all. Uh, but 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 yeah, I can see why it's like at this point. But it would be legendary if you guys did some show. I mean, whenever anyone sort of puts one of those things, what band would you most like to reform? Talking Heads is always like at the top of that list, of course. Yeah. But, you know, easy for me to say. Um, 
Do you, do you consider it by the way, unfinished business that you never performed live, you know, the songs from those last three albums, little creatures, true stories and naked. Uh, yes, I do. It was a shame. We couldn't tour those, uh, those albums, uh, especially naked. That would have been, but you know, in fairness, uh, little creatures and true stories had, uh, had a couple of house rockers on them too. <laughs> well, it would be, it certainly would be interesting if you guys did a, you know, any reunion show to see what the set list would be, because, uh, you know, there's, there's a big chunk of your catalog that hasn't been performed. Um, right. Yeah. You've, and you, you've gotten into, you know, in the book and in general, just like, a, you know, there are stories about, you know, David, uh, you know, kind of seizing credit and really sort of not being as human as, as you would like. Uh, he's, he's discussed how he's, you know, on the autistic spectrum has, I, I think he called it mild Asperger's has, has that did him to discussing that sort of make you see any of this differently or make you more sympathetic to the stuff that you all went through, or is that stuff that you sort of knew all along? Well, we, we always knew that there was something, uh, different and also very interesting about the way David, David's perspective of the world. Uh, we, we understood that, and and I must tell you, I I have to be very careful when referring to the people on the spectrum because I've come to understand that one person who's on the spectrum is you you can't, you can't make generalizations that all people are, are like this or or you know what I mean? Right. Every every person is different whether they're on the spectrum or not, but, but uh, it, it's a very touchy subject and people who are on the spectrum are very sensitive about this. And uh, there is a list, there's a checklist and I, uh, for Asperger's, like it's about 10 things that you know, if you check them all off, you, you chances are you yes, you have Asperger's. So, in the case of David Byrne, I th- I think he probably does have it. I'm not so sure that it's mild, and I'm not so sure that you ever get over it either. Which he has said you get over it. We all know, don't we? If you have it, you don't get over it. But. This is one of the things that made David such an interesting performer and an interesting songwriter and an interesting artist is this unique perspective that he has. And it was one reason when he came to me and he said, from here on, I want to write all the songs. Well, I thought to myself and I thought, David has a different perspective from me. I'm never going to think of the uh, the kind of uh, unique uh, train of I'm never going to have the unique train of thought that he has when when it comes to writing a song. So we'll just go with this. We'll go with don't worry about the government. <laughs> we'll go with I'm not in love. We'll go with no compassion. Things like that. That. I didn't know that no compassion was actually how he really felt. I thought it was kind of tongue in cheek, <laughs> but 
Am I making myself clear here? Mark? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. um, no, it's very, it's, 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 it's very tricky as you, as you said, um, yeah. but somehow that combination like of juggling all of you, a ball of fire. <laughs> well, yeah. You know. Yeah. But somehow that combination of all of you just made some incredible music. Like I can't think of an American band that had a higher peak than, than you guys. Um, so that's not even a question. That's just my own feeling about it. Well, thank you. It's also interesting too, that you think of like, you know, Talking at 77, more songs about balloons and food, fear of music, remain in light. I mean, those were four move, four albums in four years, you know, and, and like so many bands now, it's like year 12 by the time their fourth album is coming out. And there's something about just the, the speed in which bands of that era were sort of evolving that was really exciting. And, you know, it, it makes me wonder, you know, now where there's so many bands that take so long if that kind of, if, if that sort of stunted bands growth, because they're not sort of reacting on the fly so much. We had the advantage of having an art school education. And part of that education was that it's okay to emulate the people that came before you and be inspired by the people who came before you. Everybody does that. And, and you know, that's how everybody gets started. But at some point, if you if you want to be taken seriously as an artist, you have to dig down deep and you have to come back up and reveal something that is unique unto yourself, something that's different from what everybody else is doing. And we knew that with Talking Heads. And so we had to do that time and time again. And I think that, we, I think, that we succeeded at it. And that was one of the things that drove us, was not just being unique, but also wanting people to remember us into the future so that, so that we weren't following trends very much anyway, once in a while maybe. But, but uh, what we were looking for was something that would, would uh, be undeniably a work of art, you know, that people would remember years hence, years from now, they'd look back and say, ooh, that was cool. <laughs> you know? Well, I think you succeeded because I, I listen to those albums just as much now. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on uh, Carol Pop with me to talk about all this stuff. Uh, it's, it's, you know, a real thrill and treat for me to get to talk to you. And uh, I also appreciated Tina's cameo at the beginning. So you could thank her, you know, and, 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 and congratulations on 44 years of making beautiful music together, actually longer because you were together before then. Um, but, uh, but I'm, I'm really glad that you guys are still there. And uh, yeah, next time, next time you're playing somewhere, just let me know and I'll just sort of slip in the back door. Thank you very much, Mark. It was a pleasure. That's it for episode eight of Carol Pop. Thanks again to Chris France for the great insights and stories and all the fantastic music he has made. His memoir, Remain in Love, is available in paperback from St. Martin's Press. You might want to give those Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club albums another spin as well. Thank you to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Lou Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme and is available for production, engineering, and arranging work at Karma Productions Worldwide. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who knows a thing or two about finding a groove and staying in the pocket. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter, at Mark Caro. 
at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, buildings, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks. Thanks.